As you may have uh, noticed in the write-up for the day, uh, the Buddha once said, I teach one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. So we're focusing today on the um, teaching right at the center of whatever uh, 45 years of discourses, 45 years of teaching, you know, thousands of years of tradition, all the text, right? And we're focusing on what's right at the center of our practice. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. And so the purpose of the day is to really clarify what this teaching is, what it means practically, and how we work with it, both in formal meditation and in the flow of our daily lives. And one of the reasons why I think a day is important, and we could actually very easily do a week or two weeks or a month just on this theme. But one of the reasons is that the uh, teaching is not always clear to us, or it's not always obvious what this teaching means. What does dukkha and the end of dukkha mean? And one of the reasons that it's challenging is that uh, the Buddha in his teaching just gave discourses. And it was an oral tradition for 500 years. The text, the discourses were written down after 500 years. It was an oral tradition and people memorized the talks for 500 years. Can you imagine that? And it wasn't just like 10 talks. It was hundreds and hundreds, and, and there was work with memory. Uh, one of the uh, implications of that, though, is that there never was an attempt to, within the discourses, to systematize everything, to have words mean only one thing, or to have the teachings all be completely consistent, systematic, and clear. Sometimes in later Buddhist traditions, they tried to do that with sometimes interesting results, sometimes it didn't seem that helpful. But concretely, when we look even to the word dukkha, we find uh, at least four different meanings. And they're not all uh, clearly pointing to the same practices. So, for example, one of the core meanings of dukkha in the tradition, probably the, the, the meaning of the word in the everyday languages of the time, was simply to mean what was unpleasant, what was uh, difficult, what was, there's a, one uh, scholar said it means what is uneasy, uncomfortable, unpleasant, difficult, carrying uh, pain or sadness. So the unpleasant, the difficult, and the etymology of the word dukkha is actually of that meaning is in relationship 
to an off-center axle that gives a bumpy ride. <laughs> so think of one meaning of dukkha as having a bumpy ride in life. <laughs> right? And uh, that's the sense of dukkha, which is sometimes opposed to another word that many of you have heard, sukha, which means more the pleasant, what's uh, not so bumpy. Right? And that is a primary meaning of dukkha, and we find that in the discourses when the Buddha will talk about dukkha is uh, illness, dukkha is old age, dukkha is the fact of death. These are sometimes difficult to bear experiences, unpleasant. There's also another meaning of dukkha, which is that things keep changing and in particular what was once pleasant becomes unpleasant. This is called the discomfort of change. It's another meaning of dukkha. Uh, there's a further meaning of dukkha that uh, all ordinary experience will never in itself be fully satisfying that all aspects of experience are sometimes said to be unsatisfactory in the sense that they, if we focus on any one aspect, it will not bring happiness. If we focus on how my uh, body is feeling now, what my emotions are, and so forth. So it's a, a third uh, sense of, of what uh, dukkha means. But I think those uh, can be confusing. <clears throat> and I think the primary, I would say, the primary meaning of dukkha for our practice could be said to be something closer to <clears throat> reactivity. Or <clears throat> a way that we uh, don't simply uh, live in presence to what's happening, but we have some kind of resistance, reactivity to experience. And this comes out particularly in a core teaching, which I think really gets at the core of our practice. And this would be the teaching that I think most deeply expresses the meaning of dukkha and the end of dukkha. Because if you simply take dukkha to be the unpleasant, what does the end of dukkha mean? The end of unpleasant experiences? I don't think so, right? Anyone come here thinking you would have no more unpleasant experiences? I kind of thought that when I first started meditating. I thought that if I meditated enough, I would just be on this cloud of happiness and it would sort of last forever. And I was young then, so, you know, I didn't think there'd be any issues of the body. <laughs> right, so... Um, so, if we simply understand dukkha as the unpleasant, what does the end of dukkha mean? It doesn't make sense to think of uh, having a goal simply to have all unpleasant experiences end. Because unpleasant experiences come with the human condition, and in fact, the Buddha himself, when he was older, he had some bodily issues. He sometimes had headaches, and he sometimes had a bad back. 
And so if we're talking about the end of dukkha and the Buddha presumably was living without dukkha, it can't really mean the un- simply the unpleasant. Right? It has to mean something else. And there's this teaching called the teaching of the two arrows, which brings this out, and I think in a very clear way, which can be illuminating. And the teaching goes like this. The Buddha was talking to a group of practitioners and he asked them, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? And he surveyed the group and none of them answered, so he answered his own question. And by the way, non-practitioner means uh, those who don't know anything about practice, but it also means practitioners when we're not practicing, just to be clear. (laughs) Okay. And so the uh, Buddha answered, he says, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. And in this particular text, which is called the two arrows, it's sometimes translated as the two darts. He said that everyone at times experiences the unpleasant, and he likened this being shot by an arrow, which he called the first arrow. And he said everyone at times experiences unpleasant physical sensations. We have injuries, we have illnesses, we stub our toes, and so forth. And uh, I want to generalize a little bit further. He taught was in the text he was talking about physical experiences, but I think we could generalize and say we have difficult emotional experiences, we have difficult emotions, we have sadness, fear, anxiety, grief, uh, anger, all of which can be difficult or unpleasant at times. We also have difficult thoughts, we have difficult mental constructions, we, we form negative narratives about the future. Has anyone ever done that? Okay, a few. Have raised their hand. Yeah, so we have negative scenarios about the future. We torment ourselves with tape loops in which we judge ourselves. Anyone ever done that? Okay, a few more. Yeah, so, and we have difficult interpersonal experiences. We are sometimes treated unfairly or unjustly in various ways. And we could call all of those experiences the experiences of being shot by the first arrow. Their experiences of the unpleasant, and they, they fall in different categories. And that's part of being human, is that we at times have difficult, unpleasant, challenging experiences. And the Buddha said that's universally true of all being, all human beings. In that, there's no difference between a practitioner and a non-practitioner. The difference is, we might say, in what happens after the first arrow is shot. The non-practitioner will tend to shoot a second arrow, and we might say at oneself or others, as if that would help. And it's going to be the second arrow that we could understand as dukkha. And so when we stop shooting the second arrow, that's when we stop experiencing dukkha. 
So I'll explicate that a little bit more. What does the second arrow look like? What does it look like when we have difficult physical experiences? And part of our work, and part of our work in um, today and in taking the day home, is to get to know better all the ways that we shoot the second arrow. So how do we do that with difficult physical experiences? We may, uh, when we have difficult physical experiences, we may tense around the unpleasant sensations. And this is quite common. And in fact, uh, I've been told by some doctors that a large amount of what is experienced by some, in fact by many, with chronic pain isn't the original stimulus of the unpleasant or painful uh, sensations, but it's the tensing around it can cause as much as 80% of the pain. That would be shooting the second arrow. And in fact, no coincidence, the first place of medical intervention using mindfulness was with people with chronic pain. Because if you can teach them somehow to reduce or even eliminate that 80%, it's a very different experience, right? And so we can, we tense physically, we react physically, of course we can also react uh, uh, with blaming, judging, emotionally. You know, I uh, am at home, I walk in the kitchen, my partner, her roommate has left something on the floor, I stub my toe, it hurts, and I blame my partner, her roommate, for the next three days, right? That would be shooting the second arrow, right? Uh, and of course, emotionally, in our, in our life, things, uh, we have something difficult happen in our lives, we have difficult emotions, I'm angry, I'm sad, and we can again, the anger or the sadness isn't necessarily shooting the second arrow, but the blaming, the judging, the reaction, the telling of narratives, is that familiar? Very understandable. In our own experience, I get a, what, what I think is a negative job evaluation at work, and maybe I blame myself for the next month, or I judge the evaluator, <laughs> or both, right? Yeah. And, or, I, or maybe I, I react by uh, unwise behavior. I'm feeling difficult emotions and I uh, react by whatever, find, using food or drink for solace, right? Very, we, know, we know these dynamics, right? We all, those would be examples in a way of shooting the second arrow. And shooting the second arrow is really a shorthand for shooting the second, third, fourth, eighteenth, twenty-fifth, and one-thousandth arrow, right? We keep on shooting, we keep on working like that, and we can all, we can see how we do that emotionally, mentally, interpersonally. A lot of conflicts between people are two people shooting the second arrow at each other, <clears throat> continually. If you look at difficulties in relationships, you'll find something unpleasant happened, 
I blame you, I blame myself. I can think of close relationships where we're locked into each shooting the second arrow at each other, right? Very common. You look to conflicts in the world, we receive pain, we think you're to blame, we cause pain for you. So conflicts between people, between groups, between nations, all follow in many ways the uh, logic of the shooting of the second arrow. A lot of conflicts are two people, sides, groups, nations, shooting second arrows at each other. And of course, once you shoot the second arrow at another, there's more pain, oh, and the second arrow shot right back, right? And so, one way to understand the second arrow is to make a distinction. We can talk about it in different ways. I like to talk about the second arrow as reactivity. So the, the, the presence of the pleasant or unpleasant isn't necessarily a problem. It's what we do with it that can be a problem. If we shoot the second arrow, we get involved with cycles of reactivity. And so one way to understand the distinction between the first arrow, which is a given, and the second arrow, where there's some ability to uh, choose to have some freedom. We could speak, some, if, we, if we use language in a precise way, we could say that the first arrow could be called pain, and the second arrow, suffering. If we mean by suffering, that reaction. I don't, uh, I tend typically not to use suffering so much because there's ambiguity. Right? In ordinary English, pain and suffering are not typically distinguished. And so when we talk about, so I like, I like to translate or understand the second arrow as reactivity, particularly the, the pushing away, trying to push away the unpleasant. And it also is connected with the other form of reactivity is grabbing at the pleasant, typically unconsciously or compulsively. So we could use uh, if we are precise about our language, we could say that the first hour is pain or the unpleasant, not necessarily a problem. The second arrow is suffering, if we mean by suffering reactivity as opposed to simply meaning the unpleasant. And I tend not to use suffering so much again because in ordinary English there's ambiguity. And so if you hear, we want that the end of dukkha means the end of suffering, it only, to me, makes sense if suffering is understood as the shooting of the second arrow, in other words, reactivity. And so there can be confusion about that. Does it make some sense that we're not trying to get rid of the unpleasant, even though when we're actually um, reactive, that's all we want to do. But we're trying to find a way when the unpleasant is there, can I be responsive? And there is a, there's a core teaching called the teaching of dependent origination, which was the teaching that the Buddha came to on the uh, night of his awakening, which, which is a detailed teaching, but a core segment of it brings us out a little more clearly. There, the teaching of dependent origination identifies 12 links that keep, we might say, the shooting of the second arrow occurring. And four of them follow a particular sequence which we can study in meditation and in daily life. 
It's a sequence of four steps. The first is there's contact uh, with some experience, we might say, and contact with our senses, uh, contact you know, through our minds, emotions, and so forth. There's con- the first is contact. Then, secondly, there's feeling tone. With every experience, I experienced, uh, you know, looking at this bench, I experienced feeling my toe, there's some kind of experience. Um, the second step is that all of these experiences have either a pleasant, an unpleasant, or a relatively neutral uh, feeling tone. The vast majority of our experiences are neutral, or relatively <laughs> neutral. But, and we're often attentive to the pleasant and the unpleasant. A certain percentage, very quite small, of our experiences are either pleasant or unpleasant. Again, in, in themselves, not a problem. When we're not mindful and when we're not wise, we will tend, when there is an unpleasant experience, almost reactively to push it away. Actually, there, there are two steps that are distinguished. The, third, the first step, contact. The second step, feeling tone, or the second thing that happens. The third step is not wanting it, or it would be wanting the pleasant. And then the fourth step is either pushing away somewhat compulsively and unconsciously, or grasping. And I would say that that fourth step, that's the reactivity. And the teaching is that this typically happens somewhat automatically and compulsively. It's the way that someone says something you find nasty, says something nasty, and we just react back, right? Often without thinking. That, that's unpleasant, and we just react back. So this four-step process gives us a good sense of the dynamics. And what it means is that uh, for our meditative practice and for our uh, practice in everyday life, we want especially to be on the lookout for the pleasant and the unpleasant. Because if we're not aware of them, it will tend to lead to reactivity. And I'm describing the grasping and the pushing away somewhat unconsciously or totally unconsciously as the reactivity. Does that make some sense? And so our practice, and I would say the way, the core meaning of, of ending dukkha is to learn not to shoot the second arrow. Easier said than done. <laughs> right? And what we'll be exploring, I think, for the uh, rest of the day are ways to study this pattern, study our own patterns of reactivity, and learn ways of uh, being mindful of the patterns, seeing them more clearly, and learning ways to, we might say, be responsive rather than reactive. And we'll be especially looking into how we explore this just in moment-to-moment experience in meditation and then in the flow of daily life. And I'll just give a few pointers and then we'll, uh, I'll see if there are questions and then come back to uh, a short meditation. So, Broadly speaking, there are a few ways to learn better not to shoot the second arrow in our practice. One of them is getting really clear sometimes on the level of reactivity. 
very crucial starting point. We can really only be mindful of our own reactivity and study the unpleasant experiences and notice the tendencies to react when our experience is in the workable range. You know, one person brought up trauma. When there's a, a, a practice that's too intense, the best thing is to try to get out of it. And we, mindfulness is useful, but it's not useful all the time. When we have, so I like to use a model of uh, uh, finding an experience, the level of intensity on a scale of one to 10, like for Olympic divers. And, and when you're having a difficult experience, ask yourself, is, where is this on the scale of one to 10? If it's a nine or a 10, mindfulness is probably not gonna be so useful because we're, we're too caught in it, it's too intense. Certainly anything in the field of trauma, if we're traumatically activated. And then we have to have a variety of tools that help us to uh, move out of that level of intensity, you know, to whatever, um, maybe some meditative practices, sometimes take a walk, talk to a friend, uh, come out of the inner realm and look at something beautiful, all sorts of practices can be helpful. So first step is to know how to uh, know what the level of intensity is with the dukkha. The level of, rea- uh, level of reactivity. Is it workable or is it too much? Really key point in daily life and meditation. And then a second step, if it's in the workable range, then we can start to use our mindfulness and investigation and study our patterns. And that's what we'll be doing a good part of today. You know, that the core, a big part of our practice is studying our own patterns of reactivity so we get really familiar with them. Again, I like to joke sometimes that this is not always in the promotional literature. (laughs) Come to Wonderful Spirit Rock. Study your main reactive, perhaps even neurotic patterns. (laughs) Learn to become really familiar with them. Smile. (laughs) Right? So, uh, but we also, one of the ways that we'll explore later this morning is we also work to cultivate uh, states of compassion, kindness, and you know, other people were talking about joy and equanimity, that, and other awakened states really will support us to work with uh, the second arrow. So first we have to notice that it's happening, okay? And uh, then we can explore it, we bring in the heart practices, and then there are a whole set of ways when we go into the interpersonal range that we'll do a little bit on at the end, but we're mostly going to be focusing on how we work with the inner experience of dukkha and try to end dukkha there. That uh, I teach a lot on speech practice, which is a core practice, but it's too much for the day. To have instruction on how you can end dukkha by using language skillfully. But actually, my, my colleague, Oren Sofer, next weekend here, will be offering a day long on skillful speech practice in difficult situations. So you can think of that as part two. Okay. So any questions about anything that has been said so far? And again, we'll use the microphone just to, especially to clarify 
the teachings. Is that speech practice? Is that kind of like? Let, let's let's wait for the mic. Oh, sure. yeah. 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 Yeah, I was wondering if this uh, speech practice is kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy. Is that kind of changing changing your thoughts or? The uh, speech practice that we all, we do seven day retreats on it, so it's an integration of a lot of different dimensions. But it's it brings together mindfulness, heart practices, ethical guidelines. We work a lot with the uh, teachings of nonviolent communication, and we try to we try to do more advanced practices as well to have people learn to be able to be more present, mindful in the middle of speaking. So uh, it could have some overlap. So uh, you talked about shooting the second arrow, but I was curious if there are positive. How do you know sometimes that you're shooting the second arrow? Like, yeah. for example, if something has happened to you and you're reflecting on it but you're not sure how to read the situation, how would you immediately identify that? I'm actually shooting the second arrow versus... Yeah, yeah, great question. Because you're getting into a lot of complexities, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I teach on being on the judgmental mind. And for example, um, maybe I'll, I'll go into the complexity second and answer your question more directly first. Generally, we can know that there's reactivity by the body being somewhat tense, by uh, internal repetition. <laughs> that plays a big role. The kind of language we use, there'll be tendencies to exaggerate. Right? You, you probably could answer, a lot of us could answer the question together. The way we use language will be exaggerated, will, um, uh, yeah, we'll repeat internally. Look for in yourself. What would other people say? How else do you, how else do you know that you're reactive? In uh, the body will tense. There'll be uh, strong emotions. You'll uh, be triggering often old patterns of reactivity. It'll be a very familiar pattern. Uh, so actually, you see, uh, studying reactivity can be a way to get at a lot of our old patterns. You know, uh, so you know, so. But, and then the complexity is that we, uh, our reactivity is not simply something to get rid of. And this is where we could come back, you know, like the work I do with the judgmental mind. I may, my, you know, like a very formative experience where I started studying a lot of this was working with a boss who at meetings, I thought, did not listen to me. I would say something and he would change the subject. And I'd get really reactive and judgmental. Now, there was something significant. If I just say, get rid of everything, I'm giving up the insight that that wasn't acceptable, right? Same thing with injustice, right? We can be really reactive about injustice, and the reactivity, I think, is, can be a big problem. But we don't want to give up the insight about injustice or the insight about my boss. So it starts to get complex, and so I like to use the language of transforming reactivity rather than end, simply getting rid of it, right? And so, and that gets more complex. But you could see it with being judgmental, that often we're judgmental of something, we have some validity in our side. Now, the, uh, the other 
side of that, so to speak, is that when I think that I have some validity on my side, I think that my reactivity is totally okay. <laughs> right. So if that it starts to get challenging, right? But I, I'm glad we brought out that point because when we uh, when we end dukkha, it doesn't mean that we just are passive and give up our own validity, right? So that's an important point. Thank you. I think next to you. Thank you. So given that first arrow is given, second arrow is the challenge. Yeah. And whatever you do in terms of re- reactivity, but gradually by doing your practice, you release. And then over time, when you get triggered again around the same situation, you wonder how did that happen when I thought that this was resolved through my practice. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so a few things. Um, We'll learn a few different ways to work with reactivity. And there, there's a lot here. You, even in that question right before you, we could see it starts to get complex, right? And so um, the first thing is we want to study our different patterns. We just want to get to know them, get to know them well. How am I reactive? And um, a lot of the reactive patterns we have uh, carried out a hundred thousand times. The neural pathways, so to speak, are well grooved, right? And so, and yet, there is neuroplasticity, right? Or the the neuroscientists say, uh, there is neuroplasticity, which means even though I've repeated the same groove a hundred thousand times, I can change and develop a new way of responding. Really crucial here. That's the neuroscientific basis for what we're doing here today. That we can, you know, we just start building, as it were, uh, new neural pathways, right? But the old ones will keep on happening. And so we have to be patient. The ones that we've done a hundred thousand times, we'll lose it sometimes, they'll keep happening. But over time, we have the potential for transforming them. And again, mindfulness is going to be a key. Holding it with compassion is going to be a key studying it, really getting to know how it is in the body, know what our patterns are, how are they in the body? Really crucial. How, what narratives form in our minds when we're reactive? Uh, because what we want to do is study them so well and also keep our mindfulness being practiced regularly so that when in a moment, when we're just in the middle of our day, and we get triggered and we become reactive, we'll say, oh, I know that narrative. I studied that. And that's where our practice is so crucial because we need to be able, and we, if we've looked and said, oh, I know what that feels like in the body when I go into that kind of mental fog of self-blaming, right? I know what that's like. I know what it feels like. I know my body is kind of hunching and kind of depressed position and so forth. And I know that, and my mindfulness says, you're going there near the beginning of the experience, right? And then, see, that makes it possible to develop one of our responses and not continue with reactivity, right? So for our deeper ones, this is a long, it's a long haul, right? It takes a while, but this is the core of our practice, right? 
is working, I would say, working with reactivity in its many forms. And one piece that connected with your, your question also, I didn't make the connection. I would say, I see that this teaching is exactly the same teaching in the social realm that we get from uh, people like Gandhi and King. We have received pain, we have received the unpleasant. We will not react with pain, with giving you pain. Right? Rather, but we will still respond fully. Right? So, in other words, they're understanding the cyclical nature of violence. And they're saying, we want to end that cycle, but we're not simply withdrawing, but we will try not to be reactive. For me, it's the same core teaching brought to the social realm. May I ask a follow-up question? Yeah. There are times when mindfulness has kicked in and I have ignored it. Yeah. And so, are we going to be talking about that at all today? As much as you bring it up. <laughs> but yeah, that's... Um, but, but even you saying that suggests uh, some ways to respond, right? Like, I'm mindful and I just go ahead and whatever, say what I was going to say anyway. Right? And so what would, what would help you not to do that? Probably coming here today helps, right? And just to, and how many can relate to that? How many people are sometimes mindful of reactive patterns and still, <laughs> right? And so one of the ways to work with it is to really study what happens when you do that. Because part of our learning is going to be to really experience what it's like when we're reactive. Maybe we get our way, we make our point, but how does it actually feel? Because ultimately the change is going to come from some inner sense like, I don't want to do this. And what leads to that? Understanding the teachings, watching it over and over again, and um, maybe strengthening intention when you're going to a situation where it's likely to occur. You're going to whatever, a, a meeting, like my meeting that I was talking about. You're going to a family gathering where it's likely to be reactivity. You get a really strong intention. Maybe you have support from a friend. Those would be some of the ways to help, right? That to really, but especially to know what kind of situations bring out my reactivity, right? So that, that, that gets at some of it, right? Okay, maybe... Maybe uh, two more, okay. Yeah, more of a logistical one. I know some of us are taking notes yeah. today on, on your talks, but do you have some literature here or on, online we can refer to that outlines the arrows, the, you know, the 12 things that you were talking about that... Yeah, that uh, the, so 12, the 12, the 12, the 12... more than... Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and we are gonna, this part of the day will be something you can listen to later. Yeah. Um, I have a reading list out there which, which has some books which would give the overview. Um, I don't want to be overly self-promotional, but there is a discussion of the two arrows in the book I have for sale. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a whole, a whole section on that. Uh, and then in terms of dependent origination, I just went into a little bit on that teaching, but there's, um, there are teachings on the website Dharma Seed uh, where it's given in more depth and I have some talk series on that that go into a lot more detail. I'd be happy to write out 
the four steps that I mentioned and just, just post it. That's easy enough to do. Yeah. Maybe last one before we uh, maybe do a little bit of a meditation. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I just want to, I think the, the, the component part. The, a little, little closer. I think uh, an idea would be is desensitization, desensitizing oneself to a trigger too. Because yeah. you're just focusing on, um, in your comments on the reactive part, but what if you, you know, maybe you could talk about the idea of just desensitizing yourself to something that triggers. Uh, you want to give an example, maybe? No. A, little, a little closer to your mouth. Oh, um, well, if you're prone to react in a certain way because you're sensitive about something, if you just can um, mute that, um, it's not, it's not, Okay, let's use my example of the boss. Uh, I say something, the boss doesn't listen to me. What would that mean in that context? And I get reactive about that. Uh, let's use the mic. Yeah. I guess the idea is to go into the world, into a meeting, knowing that you have a difficult person you're dealing with, and therefore you have an expected outcome. Yeah. Expect. Um, not to be heard. So yeah. Therefore, you don't take it personal. Yeah, I, I did that. <laughs> yeah, it, that could be helpful in some contexts when, and just to, you know, it's really bringing in wisdom and equanimity. Like, do I want myself just to keep on getting triggered by this predictable behavior by this person, right? Right, and so. I might be able just to say, I'm just going to let that go. And I know what's happening. Or, you know, maybe I would say I want to be skillful. I did have that perspective um, in this particular instance that I'm giving, and I still found myself reactive. You know, because it was, uh, it really is going to depend on sort of the, the depth of charge in one's being. You know, and some things are, are easier to be spacious about than others, right? For me, you know, as I learned, that sense of not being listened to was pretty deep, kind of a wound, you might say. And so it was harder to just say, oh yeah, it's happening, okay, I'll let it go. But it was more like, ah, more like that. And so, but for some people, it might not be such a big deal, right? Or maybe with some people, it might not be a big deal. So, so I, think, I think what you're pointing to is to uh, maybe Maybe we bring in wisdom perspectives. I call them wisdom perspectives. This is the how, and I, I can think at other times it certainly worked like that. You know, we can know, and we do that in a sense maybe with children often, right? Children can say something to you, blame you in a way that if an adult did it, you'd be triggered, but you know, oh, you know, I'm, you know, that person's coming from hurt or something, right? So. So I think I think it's uh, in some cases I think we could we could do that, but in some cases it's, it's easier said than done. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is the entryway. The, the main thing I wanted to give was just to have that sense that the I think the core of our practice is understood with this two arrows teaching, and the sense of reactivity. And the thing I didn't say so clearly was that in a sense there are two forms of reactivity. And we also want to look at the tendencies to grasp to, that comes from the pleasant experience. Sometimes that's more subtle. We're the, when we react negatively, push away, that's sometimes bigger, right? More splashy. 
more obvious, but the reactivity from grabbing hold is also part of reactivity. It's sort of the flip side. And in fact, uh, when you think of the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths, he was actually bringing in both of those teachings because he defines in that teaching, dukkha is the presence of the unpleasant. And he says the cause of dukkha is grasping after the pleasant. It's interesting, ever think of, why does he bring those two together? Right? But they're really the two forms of reactivity and ultimately they're quite connected. And we want to work with both of them, but the, the negative, the shooting of the second arrow, uh, because of the unpleasant, will get our attention more. And we're going to be focusing a little bit more on that today. Okay, so let's see. We have um, just a little bit of time. Let's do a very brief meditation, and this will lead into our walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.